Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chinese History Podcast. I'm your host, Yiming Ha. Today's episode is the first in a new series called Governing China, which will highlight the various bureaucratic institutions and administrative policies that the Chinese dynasties employed to govern its empire throughout its long history. This first episode will focus on the bureaucracy of the Ming Dynasty, and joining me today is Professor Chelsea Wang, an assistant professor of history at Claremont McKenna College here in Southern California. As a historian of late imperial China, Professor Wang's research focuses on the intersection between communication and governance in pre-modern empires. Her current manuscript project is titled Logistics of Empire, Governance, and Spatial Friction in Ming China, 1368-1644, and it examines how the Ming Dynasty maintained control over its vast territories using certain administrative practices that modern observers might find counterintuitive and strange. Thank you, Professor Wang, for coming to the show. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Very excited to do this. The Ming Dynasty was one of the largest empires in the world at the time, and while it wasn't the largest empire, it still ruled over a vast territory that encompassed millions upon millions of people. Therefore, it had to develop a very complex bureaucracy and bureaucratic institutions to govern its territory and people. Can you start off by giving us a very brief overview of the bureaucratic structure that the Ming Dynasty used? Yeah, sure. This is a little bit hard without visual aids, but let me try. So, if you grossly simplify it, the Ming bureaucracy probably looked a little bit like a pyramid, at least on paper. So, at the very top of that pyramid, you have the emperor who theoretically has unlimited power in appointing officials and also in deciding on policy. But of course, in practice, the emperor has to work through the bureaucracy to get anything done. So in practice, his power was limited. Even the most powerful emperor was limited in his actual power. Now, below the emperor, you have what I would call the capital offices. So these are offices located in the capital, in the city of Nanjing in early Ming, and later it was moved to Beijing. And these are offices that handled either matters related to the imperial family or things having to do with the entire empire or at least a big portion of it. So you have the emperor, then you have the capital offices, and then below the capital offices, you have what I would call the territorial offices. And these are offices that basically divided the empire up into different regions and districts to govern them piecemeal. And depending on how you count them, you have anywhere from three to seven levels of territorial offices. But the most important ones are the province at the very top, then the prefecture at the middle, and then the counties at the very bottom. And just to give listeners a sense of the scale that we are talking about, by the end of the Ming Dynasty, there were 15 provinces, 162 prefectures, and 1,173 counties in total. So that's what I would say that diagram would look like. So the utility of this metaphor is that when we think about this pyramid structure, then we can categorize different types of scholarship by thinking about where on that pyramid a particular scholar is focused on. So for example, there is a big 
group of scholarship that's focused on the balance of power between the emperor and the bureaucracy. So that category of scholarship, I would say that's focused on the very top portion of the pyramid. Now, there's another group of scholarship that's interested in how the state interacted with society. So for that group of scholarship, it's more kind of focused on the boundaries between the whole pyramid and the outside world, the world outside of the bureaucracy. Now, what I'm interested is I'm interested in how the emperor as well as the capital offices together as a group monitored and controlled the territorial officials. So in that sense, I'm interested in the entirety of that pyramid, but rather than trying to describe it from the outside, I'm interested in its internal construction in looking at what were the mechanisms inside that allowed that pyramid to stay together without collapsing for hundreds of years. That's very interesting. And I know in your research, you've uncovered a lot of bureaucratic practices that the Ming employed to govern their territorial offices. But before we go further in that direction, I just want to ask you about your intellectual journey as a historian. How did you become interested in this study of the Ming bureaucracy? Sure. So that's actually a very interesting story. When I first became interested in Chinese history, the state or the bureaucracy was the last thing that I thought I would want to study. I came into Chinese history interested in intellectual and cultural history, and I was interested broadly in literati culture in late imperial China. So I wrote my undergraduate thesis on the letters of Wang Yangming. I then applied to PhD program saying that I was going to write my dissertation on the publication of literary collections, basically Wenji uh, in Chinese. So I was interested in how the literati were communicating with each other, what they were thinking, and so on. When I started my dissertation research, I told my whole dissertation committee that I was going to study the geographical imagination of the literati in the province of Huguan. So again, a project about literati culture. Now, when it changed, what was really doing my dissertation research stage, when I actually had the time to sit down and finally study the literati culture that I was so interested in, the first thing I did was to collect a lot of literary collections, Wenji, of the people who were natives of Huguang province. And by the way, so Huguang is the Ming province that encompassed the modern provinces of Hubei and Hunan. So when I started looking at these literary collections, and for listeners who may not be familiar with this genre, basically literary collections are publications that collect all of the writings or most of the writings written by an individual. And they are usually placed in chapters that are categorized by genres. So you might have chapters that are poems, some other chapters are letters, there's maybe another chapter that collects all of this person's official writings. And when I was flipping through these literary collections, I was interested in the chapters about letters and poems, basically the genres that would allow me to access the mentality of these literati. But very surprisingly, 
whenever I flipped through the other chapters that contained official writing, I couldn't remove my eyes from them. I was so much attracted to them, even more than the other chapters and poems and letters. And the reason for that is that these official writings contained a lot of very detailed information about the communication of these literati. So I was already very much interested in the issues of communication. And if you look at non-official writing, let's say a letter, right? It's sent to a friend. You sometimes don't know who the friend is. You have to do a lot of digging to figure that out. But you also don't know where the sender was located and where the recipient was located. You don't know when the letter was sent and when it was received. Whereas if you look at official writing, because of the nature of the state that wants to record so many detailed information, actually you have a lot of that information already in those documents. So then I became fascinated by these documents because there was so much information that I was interested in, but also the more that I read, there were also other aspects of these documents that really fascinated me. So eventually I got sucked into the black hole of Ming institutional history, and I'm still wandering there trying to find my way out. Yeah, and I, I think it's really interesting. I know listeners can't see us, but you know, your Zoom background is actually a picture of a Qing. I assume it's a Qing memorial. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. It's a Qing Relay Certificate. So it's the document that you need to show in order to use the state-run relay system so that you can travel very far. But yes, thank you for noticing that. <laughs> I see. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting that you as a Ming historian has a Qing background. But going back to the Ming, you said earlier in your explanation of the bureaucracy that, and again, this is very simplified terms, that it resembles a pyramid. And I think even if we were to lay out the entire Ming bureaucratic structure with all its offices on a flash sheet of paper, and just looking at this piece of paper, the way that is designed would seem to us as quite practical. And certainly Max Weber, the German sociologist, has his whole study on bureaucracy and what constitutes an ideal bureaucracy. And the Ming institution would certainly check his boxes of what a bureaucracy should look like on paper. However, in your research, you've uncovered certain practices, bureaucratic practices that seem strange or counterintuitive to us as modern observers, but in the context of the Ming, have their own logic. So can you provide some examples of these practices? Yeah, sure. And to backtrack a little bit, I totally agree. This is another reason I got sucked into the black hole of Ming institutional history, which is that when I started looking at these official documents, I had the same perspective as yours in that it looked like what Max Weber would describe as a modern rational bureaucracy it has a lot of those components. But interestingly, the other aspect of these documents that really fascinated me is that the more you read them, when you read more of the details, then you start noticing that they actually did some things that really don't make sense from our modern perspectives. And yet you treat it as a bureaucracy, which you automatically associate with concepts of modernity, right? So there is a little bit of dissonance in what you expect of this structure and what 
gradually emerges from the documents that you read in terms of what they did. So one example of that counterintuitive practice, I would say, is the narrative structure that they adopted in official documents. And I should say that this is not unique to the Ming. This structure applied to Qin Dynasty documents emerged probably sometime around the Song Dynasty. But basically what I'm referring to is that if you read an official communication from the Ming Dynasty or even the Qin between different offices, you are likely to find very long strings of direct quotations. They are also not arranged in any chronological manner, so they are very hard to read and they are very long. Now, again, it's hard to explain without the help of visuals, and in my writing, I actually use a number of Ming examples to explain it. But for the purpose of our conversation here, I think it's probably best that I just use a completely made up example to explain what these documents look like. Let's maybe suppose that you are a faculty member in my department and I'm the department chair and you want to take a leave next year and you need to get permission from the dean in order to do so. So you will then send me an email and here is what you would write. You would say, dear Chelsea, I would like to take a leave next year because the Chinese History Podcast is just one step away from being the number one podcast in the world. And I want to devote more time to the podcast. So would you write to the dean and endorse my request? Now, in the modern world, here is how the case would usually proceed. I would then write to the dean, and let's say the dean's name is Mary, and I would say, dear Mary, Yiming from my department wants to take a leave next year so he can devote more time to making the Chinese history podcast better. I think this is a worthwhile cause and I support the decision. Would you consider approving his request? I would probably basically summarize or paraphrase what the email that you wrote and then I would convey that request to the dean. But if we were living in the mean world and I were writing to the dean, here is the kind of document that I would have written. I would say, Dear Mary, on July 20th, 2020, I received an email from Yiming saying the following. Dear Chelsea, I would like to take a leave next year because the Chinese History Podcast is just one step away from being the number one podcast in the world, blah, blah, blah. And then the document continues. I quote the entire email that I received from you. And then I come back to my commentary. I say, I agree that this is a worthwhile cause and I support Yiming's decision. So I forward this request to you for your approval. So this is just a quick example of how these documents might sound. And this is a simplified example. If you look at actual mean documents, they are much more complex in that right now I just quoted one document. A lot of mean documents will have many layers of quotation. So let's say that I was a grant coordinator, which is basically like a provincial governor. And if I were writing a report or a memorial to the emperor, I might quote within my document, maybe a document I received from the provincial administration commission, which in turn quotes a document from a prefecture, which in turn quotes a document from a county, which in turn quotes an earlier instruction 
instruction from the prefecture and so on. So you can already imagine that it becomes very long, very quickly, it becomes very confusing. And importantly, because there are so many layers of quotations, it becomes hard for the reader to figure out who exactly is speaking at any point. And also, you could easily have a document where, let's say, it's a thousand characters, but only 300 of those characters concern anything substantial, concern the request that you want to take a leave to work on your podcast. So when scholars have looked at these kind of documents, many scholars have been a little bit puzzled, and some scholars have also criticized this kind of document, saying that it's very redundant, and they are also very inefficient. And some scholars will cite this as kind of part of the bureaucratic problem of the Ming and Qin dynasties. And what I try to do in my work is rather than looking at this and saying, haha, see how the Ming people were so stupid, they didn't know how to write. I want to then try to figure out what was the actual logic behind that practice. Is there any way in which we can try to make sense of this? I was just going to ask you, what is the logic? Clearly, as you stated, these memorials can get very long. There's a lot of information. A lot of it is just quotes. It's hard to find the substance. And by the time it reaches the capital, let's say it's from the county, it's got layers and layers of information in it. Why would they do this then? Why didn't they find a simpler way of quoting things? Yeah, the argument that I try to make in my work is that, yes, I agree. From our modern perspectives, it looks like these documents contain a lot of extraneous information. But I think that if we were to stop a moment and imagine the realities of communication in the Ming Dynasty, how slow the communication was and how high of a cost it was, then their practices of communication start to make sense a little bit. And I argue that the redundancy that they built into their official narrative actually has practical functions. And the practical function in there is that within the document itself, you are basically encompassing an archive of all of the relevant communications that can easily be packaged together, reproduced into many different copies, and forwarded to many different offices. So let's maybe return to your great podcast example for one moment. And imagine what kind of problem we might face if we adopted that simpler communication method in the main context. Let's say in the modern world, right here is what might happen. So let's say that the reason, the real reason for you asking for a leave was actually not to work on the podcast, but you actually just wanted to go travel around the world, but you didn't tell me. Now, one day your enemy discovers this fact and your enemy writes a letter to the dean saying, you know what, I have discovered that Yiming submitted a fake report to take a leave, and here is all of the evidence I'm attaching that. Well, what's going to happen? The dean is probably going to email me and say, dear Chelsea, what's happening? There is this clear case of a fake report, and yet you endorsed it. Today, I can very easily resolve that issue by quickly writing to the dean and saying that, well, 
you know what? I actually did not know that Yimin was deceiving me. Here is a copy of the email that he sent me. And here is all of the things that he said to me. And I was acting based on that information. I can do that very quickly, right? But no, imagine that we were in the mean world. It would be a lot harder for me to clear my name. So the first step I would need to do when I received that angry communication from the dean is that I would need to go into my archive and find a copy of the letter that you sent me earlier. And it would probably, it could have been maybe a year later. So first I need to have had a very good archival practice to have preserved that letter and also be able to find that letter very quickly. Additionally, let's imagine that you were located in the city of Chongqing. I was located in the city of Chengdu and the dean is located in Beijing and that's about 1500 kilometers away. I'm now going to send my report with a copy of your letter, have some way of authenticating it so that I can prove that letter is real and send that whole package to Beijing. That could take maybe five to six months round trip from the time the dean sends the letter to me and me sending it back. In the meanwhile, the dean could lose confidence in me, could fire me. In our modern world, deans usually cannot fire department chairs, but in this fake world, let's say that she can, right? So I'm in deep trouble for not having attached the entirety of your letter in my first communication. And I think that this example can also work in the opposite way. So maybe me as a middle person could also have faked your words in the letter and submitted reports that's not advantageous to you. So in a way, the system of embedding quotations within documents protects everyone involved and in allowing smoother communication in the world where communication time lags were really long and also keeping archives also involved a lot of difficulties and costs. So I think what this example shows is that things that are really trivial in the modern world could actually have been a logistical nightmare if you try to do the same things in the pre-modern world where communication takes much longer and the costs are much higher. And in this world, in the case of these embedded quotations, we can see that the redundancy built in them actually had a practical function in the sense that it was a world where it would have been so time consuming and so difficult to launch any kind of investigation if you found anomaly in the communication. So rather than wait for that problem to arise, why not attach an archive of all of your communications from the beginning so that you can kind of drastically lower the chance of running into a problem like this in the first place? Wow, I think that's really fascinating. And definitely, we've all taken modern communications for granted when we think about these things, right? In the Ming, they had no email. So it's actually impossible for them to just forward documents sent from a lower level administrative territory to the capital. But you've mentioned that by the time it reaches the capital, say the memorial has a thousand words and only 300 of them might have some substance. So I assume that the officials in the capital would have developed some sort of technique to quickly find out the information that they want without going through all these different layers of quotations. 
Yes, that, that's a really important point. And I have not been able to find at least no means source that I'm aware of that lets me know how exactly the officials read these documents. Did they read from the beginning to end? And did they have strategies of basically just picking out the key terms to skip to the important, the substantial parts? I think that they probably did because I know that's how modern scholars read these documents. Once you read enough of them, you know where to go to find the substantial part. What we do know is that both in the Ming and in the Qing, they had this system, I believe in the Qing it was called Tiehuang, which is a direct translation, is a pasted yellow paper that you put at the beginning of a document, usually a memorial sent to the emperor, and that would contain an abstract of what's in the document. So whenever you send a really long document, what happens is you attach an abstract at the beginning that's very short, and then the document itself contains all of the details, which means that if you are a very high-ranking official who is an important decision maker, you may not need to read the whole document. You just read the abstracts, whereas maybe some of your clerks might read some of the more detailed portions. But that's my imagination. I have not not seeing any particular sources talking about that. But what I also know is from the Ming, based on a few cases of communication fraud, basically subordinates claiming fake things in their communications, we do know that some officials actually read these documents quite carefully. And they would say that, oh, in here you said this, but I noticed that in an earlier communication that was quoted in a different document here is what you said then. So what's going on, there must have been some kind of fake things going on. But yeah, that's a really important question that I'm still not exactly sure. Yeah, and hopefully in the future you can find the answer because it seems like one of those things, right? If you're reading all these quotations and you're trying to find like one specific passage, how do you do it? And I know in some cases we as historians today might have been spoiled because some of these texts have been punctuated by earlier scholars. So it's really easy for us to know, oh yeah, here's the quotation and here is the response. But for a reader in the Ming or even the Qing, they don't have the annotations and the punctuation. So yeah, they must have some strategy that they used to read these things. Yeah, exactly. And I think I should add that we do have a number of examples of officials complaining about their list. So some officials did say that uh, documents are getting longer and they are so hard to read. And basically they use rhetoric like, even for us officials, it takes so long to read. So it must be so hard for the emperor to read, for your majesty to read. So we need to do something about it. But did they do anything about it or did this practice continue into the chain? So the structure of embedded quotations did continue into the Qing. I do not have too much experience reading Qing documents, but my impression, though, is that Qing documents, if you compare them with equivalent genres of Ming official documents, they do look a little bit more streamlined. And I don't think that it's because of a change in the narrative structure. It may have something to do more with the structure of the bureaucracy, basically which offices a communication was passing through, in that I find the Qin documents a little bit easier to read because they contain fewer quotations. I see. Yeah, this is very interesting. 
But I do want to move on to another very important point that you make in your research. And this is the practice of having the territorial officials make regular trips to the capital, Beijing, to undergo performance evaluations and to participate in state rituals. And in a lot of cases, these officials are located far away from the capital, and they will spend a lot of time just traveling back and forth. And I've always been very fascinated by why this practice exists, because it seems really counterintuitive. If you have the official leave their post for that long, would it not impact local administration? So can you go over some of the implications for this practice and why did it exist and how did the state address the problems of having the territorial officials leave their post? Sure. And first, to just provide a little bit of background, there are two categories of travels that local officials had to do. So let's say if you were a county magistrate in the Ming Dynasty, there were two types of trips. The first is called Kaoman in Chinese and what I translate as the third year review. So this is a regular evaluation that you go through every three years of your service. So let's say if I started my service this year, then three years later, I need to go through the third year review. And usually I'm required to go to Beijing, the capital, to undergo that evaluation. And this was a less disruptive form of travel for the Ming Dynasty just because it was happening in different cycles for different officials. So I might go for my evaluation this year, but maybe you will go next year. So we are not all going away at the same time. Now, the second category of trips that I might have to make is called Chaojing in Chinese. And I translate that as the triennial audience and evaluation. What this is that on the Ming calendar, there are designated years that are known as the audience years. And these happen every three years. So in the audience year, a lot of the head officials of all of the territorial governments are required to go to Beijing. So these include the head officials of all of the provincial governments, all of the prefectural governments, and all of the county governments. And the officials would then go to Beijing, and on New Year's Day, they are going to hold a very big ceremony to kind of celebrate New Year's Day, but also it's an audience with the emperor. So they get a chance to see the emperor from afar. They bow to him and they perform all these kind of rituals. And in addition to that, in the several weeks before and after that New Year ceremony, they also go through a number of evaluations at the Ministry of Personnel at the capital. And this is the ministry that handled all of the personnel matters. And so the third year review and the triannual audience and evaluation are different in the sense that in the third year review, usually you go to Beijing, it's likely that you get promoted. Whereas if you go to Beijing for the triennial audience and evaluation, there's actually a little bit of a chance that you might be dismissed. But they are both evaluations. They both involve travel to Beijing. But the triennial audience and evaluation is super disruptive for the state just because they happen all at the same time. So when this comes around, all of the head officials throughout the empire are leaving their posts and going to Beijing. And in the case of one Fujian magistrate that I have examined, it actually took him six months run trip 
to leave his post, go to Beijing, undergo the ritual and the evaluations and come back to his post. So we can imagine how much longer it might have taken for officials in Sichuan and Guangdong and so on. So I would say that in terms of the negative impact of these traps, we can put them into three categories. The first is that there is certain travel costs associated with these trips. So in addition to the material cost of travel, including all of the servants that these officials might need to bring, the officials usually also, there was the practice of bringing a lot of gifts so that when you see colleagues at the capital, this is a great time to socialize. And in addition, because you are also being evaluated during these evaluations, some officials would also bring bribes to some of the capital officials. And and supposedly there was a quota as to how much an official could tax the local population to support these travels. But generally, a lot of officials were actually using these occasions to tax the local population, a lot of extra, collecting extra taxes, and they were basically using local resources in order to fund all of these trips. So the first negative effect is kind of material dimension of it. The second negative effect, and again, I do not know if it was true in fact, but the discourse in mean documents is that because the head official has to then delegate his responsibilities to a subordinate, that subordinate official who takes over in an acting capacity is going to be either less competent or less hardworking because he's only in there for a limited amount of time. And finally, the third negative effect is that I do see some evidence of balls being dropped just because of that regular transfer of responsibilities. So in one case that I have looked at, there was one particular account book that had to be compiled in the province of Sichuan. Eventually, it was delayed for two whole years after the deadline. And when investigation was done, there were a lot of contributing factors as to why it was delayed for so long. But one of the reasons was that the provincial administration commissioner had to leave for his triennial audience and evaluation. So then he gave responsibility of supervising that account book to a subordinate. And because of that regular shifting responsibility, it got delayed. So there were clearly a lot of negative consequences and costs associated with these trips. So your question was then, you know, did the state do anything about it? Did they also recognize these trips as wasteful? And I would say that the answer, actually, there are two dimensions. Ming officials clearly saw that these trips had various forms of cost. But as to whether the costs were justified, and whether we should all continue these practices, officials were a little bit divided. So I do see some evidence that some officials would actually say that these trips are costing us too much, and they would criticize the current practices, and they would suggest making some changes. Maybe no one went as far as saying that we should eliminate all of them, but some critics would try to say that maybe we should make these trips less frequent, or maybe we should require 
fewer categories of officials to travel all the way to Beijing. Or they might say that maybe we should make it easier to exempt officials from certain regions that are experiencing time-sensitive matters. Maybe there is a flood, there is a famine. So in these provinces, if you're from that province, maybe you can be exempted from going to Beijing. Now, on the other hand, though, there were also a lot of other officials who opposed these calls for reform. And I would say that their reasoning comes down to the argument that these trips actually had a lot of value despite the cost. So in the case of personnel evaluations, we would say that, well, yeah, of course, we could carry out evaluations just based on documents submitted by these officials, but we also need to look at them directly so that we can see what kind of person he is. And is he very old? Can he still move around? Things like that. And that's something that we can't do just based on documents. And very importantly, also in relation to that audience that they are going to hold with the emperor, they are going to say that that is so important. We are a dynasty that really values ritual. And when the magistrate comes to Beijing to finally take a look at the emperor, he is going to be awed by the emperor's prowess. And then he is going to then go back to his county, having been transformed by the emperor and work even harder. And of course, there's also argument to be made about being able to all come to Beijing and see each other and socialize and things. And so I think it's actually very similar to what's happening to all of us post-COVID, right? When the COVID pandemic hit, a lot of academic conferences went online and we started doing remote conferences. And we saw that it's possible to do remote conferences But once things came back a little bit to normal, people still continue holding in-person conferences, despite the fact that we know that it's probably contributing to climate change. Why do we still do that? Well, we think that there is something to be gained from these in-person experiences. So that's a very similar argument that these Ming officials made. So finally, maybe to sum this up then, what happened to these two groups of arguments? If you look at how things evolved in the Ming, you see a very interesting trend, which is that the Ming did change some of its practices over time. So the requirement of who needs to travel and how often they travel a little bit. But the general trend is that the Ming stayed more and more relaxed the travel requirement when it came to the third year review the Kalman practice, because it only evolved the matter of evaluation. So more and more officials could just stay at their post and go through the third year review. Whereas for the triennial audience and evaluation, even until the end, the Ming was very reluctant to relax this requirement because it contained a ritual component. And it was so much harder to make an argument that we should remove a kind of ceremony where the officials get to see the emperor. So of course, then, you know, given that trend, we come down to the question of, so did this emphasis on rituals by the Ming state constitute any kind of systematic waste of resources? 
Or was there some kind of real practical function to all of the resources used to maintain these state rituals? What I believe is probably the latter, and I try to explain my reasoning in my book, but I think it would take way too long to try to explain that here. So I would just, I think, stop here and I would say, read my book when it comes out if you're interested. How would you characterize the Ming bureaucracy and its bureaucratic practices? You think it was a successful bureaucracy given whatever constraints that they had at the time? Or do you think that ultimately the bureaucracy was one of the contributing factors to the Ming's collapse? I think in terms of did the bureaucracy contribute to the Ming state's collapse, I think one argument that we hear a lot is the argument that the late Ming was really troubled by factionalism, right? And this is the argument made by, or by Qing dynasty intellectuals all the way to maybe a lot of modern historians have also made the observation, which is that by the time you get to the late Ming, you have very intense factionalism and you have officials who are basically trying to help all of their friends while attacking their enemies promoting their own factions so that most of the officials were not doing what was right to the state. Because I'm not an expert in factionalism, I'm not going to try to assess how correct that kind of evaluation is. But I think something that's worth pointing out and thinking about is how factionalism then related to issues of morality and what it tells us about the nature of mean bureaucracy. So here I'm drawing on a number of recent studies. So for example, in the recent book, Confucian Image Politics, Im Zhang has talked about how the late Ming literati were increasingly concerned about matches of morality and also presenting images of themselves as moral individuals. But that desire of presenting a moral image was also intertwined with matches of factionalism. For example, you have situations where everyone agrees that filial piety is a very important value. So everyone is trying to outfilial each other, and it leads to more and more extreme performances of filial piety, while some enemies are going to attack others by saying that, oh, he is not filial enough, or he is just pretending to be filial because he wants a good reputation for himself. In a recent article, Sarah Schneewind also talks about what she calls an authenticity dilemma among the main officials, which is the kind of interesting situation where an official is, is expected to be incorruptible by declining any gifts or bribes. But when an official does that, he opens himself up to the accusation that he only did that in order to build a good reputation for himself and he was being very greedy for reputation. Now, in my own research, a very similar situation is where, let's say you are a high-ranking official and the emperor promotes you to a new position. And what should you do? As an official of the Ming Empire, probably what's best to state 
is to follow that order and go to your new post very quickly because it takes a while to travel. On the other hand, because I want to present a moral image of myself, of course, I want to show the whole world that I'm a humble individual. So I'm going to send a memorial to the emperor saying that, oh, I am very surprised to get this order, but I am really not worthy of this position. So I am going to decline this position and I am asking you to please upon someone else. That whole exchange is probably going to take a few months. You're going to wait for the emperor to then send you another order saying, what are you talking about? I am asking you to go to your new post. So you have to go. So that's about three to six months wasted in terms of just showing your humility rather than going to your new post. And in the meanwhile, anything that needs to be taken care of is still waiting in there. That's really bad for the state as a whole. So in terms of your question of then how do you assess the nature of Ming bureaucracy, I think these situations are interesting because if you look at what the Ming state did, I think the short answer is not a lot. I'm still in the middle of researching it, but it didn't do a lot of these very destructive behaviors. And here is the reason. The Ming state is not a monolithic entity. It's made up of a lot of individuals with a lot of different interests. So there was no one who had the motivation to do something about these kinds of problems because let's say if you're a high official and you say that we need to ban these kind of practices, in the end, if you yourself get promoted, you're probably also going to decline that post because you have more to lose by being accused of being power hungry than by receiving any kind of administrative sanction. So when we compare these kind of self-destructive practices with, let's say, the case of embedded quotations that I mentioned earlier, where I say that it's counterintuitive, but it has a function. The key difference is that the other practice actually benefited both the Ming state and most of the individuals within it. Whereas these matters of factionalism and morality, all of the individuals had a reason to keep playing the game even though keeping playing the game was destructive to the state. So they were all acting rationally as individuals, but in the end, they were acting irrationally as members of the collective. So that's my kind of tentative evaluation as to the nature of mean bureaucracy. I think that there were many aspects of it that made a lot of sense, but there were also certain characteristics of it that because of the incentive structure and because of how individuals within it acted did contribute negatively to the functioning of the whole state. But I do want to tie this back to something that I mentioned earlier and also something that I forgot to mention, which is that I think if I had a chance to go back to my undergraduate years and talk to me, I think this is what I would talk to the undergraduate Chelsea, which is that at the time, I thought that institutional history was super boring. It's so dry. It's all about looking at what the regulations were and how things functioned. What I did not realize at the time is that institutional history is really about looking at ideas. It's about looking at what were the motivations of people, 
how people acted and what were the thinking behind that. The officials didn't necessarily write about this explicitly, but to understand how this institution worked, we really need to look at some of the underlying ideas and people's motivation behind that. And once you figure out that institutions are really about ideas and about culture, suddenly I find it to become so interesting and fascinating. You know, as an institutional historian myself, albeit while working on the military, I absolutely agree. It's not just about the regulations and the rules and the institutions themselves. I think these things are living, breathing beings that are being interpreted and used by different people for different reasons, and they evolve over time. And I certainly look forward to reading more about the Ming bureaucracy and these institutional practices in your book when you complete it, because it's just so fascinating. And especially when you think about the fact that towards the later part of the Ming, these emperors stopped attending court audiences, yet somehow the bureaucracy kept functioning despite the emperor being absent. So I think perhaps people don't give the Ming enough credit for developing these institutions that can function, even though it is plagued with a lot of problems. Thank you so much, Professor Wang, for coming to the show and telling us all these fascinating things about the Ming bureaucracy that you probably won't learn just flipping through textbooks. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a really fun conversation. So thank you. That concludes our interview today. Thank you so much for listening to the Chinese History Podcast.